Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 247, Queen Catherine III. First of all, very exciting news everyone. I and my colleagues at Agora have a new sponsor and a brilliant sponsor they are too. It's a course called OnlineGreatBooks.com by an organisation called Intellectual Linear Progression. What they do is run online courses on the great works that changed history. The way it works is that every month you are sent a physical copy of the book you're due to study, starting with Homer, and then you'll progress through Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, and on through the moderns. And in this way, your knowledge grows on a firm scaffold. Learning is by discussion, so nobody is talking at you. Instead, you get together in a video seminar every month with a small group of your fellows, led by a trained host. Plus, you get support all along the way, regular reminders and goals, and an online discussion forum in addition to the video seminar. The system is designed to help you progress through each text with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Sounds brilliant, does it not? A great way to understand the ideas that underpin European civilization. Plus, History of England listeners get a discount. Go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ref forward slash eng and then enter the promotional code if you do decide to join up get the 25% off, the promotional code being ENG, E-N-G, and that'll give you 25% off your first three months. That's onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash R-E-F forward slash E-N-G, and the promo code was ENG. I'll put a link on my website to boot. You have to wait two days, though. The code will only work from the 1st of May. Last week, then, I mentioned that after his despair at Catherine Howard's betrayal, Henry turned to his first love for consolation. I speak, of course, about war with France. Maybe he could at least restore his battered reputation as the great Renaissance prince by emulating Henry V 
and capturing Paris. I should just warn you at this point that if you have joined to hear about death, destruction and warfare, that won't come until next time. Sorry about that. But we must follow due process. Henry probably enjoyed the whole diplomacy thing. It was without dispute the stuff of kings. He was now mighty experienced at it and would probably feel that the indignities of his youth when he had been run ragged by Ferdinand of Spain were now safely behind him. And he'd been sparring with Francis and Charles for decades now. And he wasn't bad at the manoeuvring. Though we have yet to see much evidence that the military follow-through could compete with Henry V, but then, fair dues, Henry V had had the most remarkably favourable diplomatic situation and an opponent who helpfully played to his strengths. But anyway, maybe this would finally be the moment for Henry VIII. And he started by indulging in the sort of outrageous duplicity that both Francis and Charles would have loudly applauded, given that they were doing exactly the same thing at the same time. So Henry strung Francis along with the idea of a marriage between his daughter Mary and Francis's son, all the while insisting that he would not make Mary legitimate, quite understanding this would be a deal-breaker for Francis. And anyway, Francis himself was only trying to stop Henry from talking to Charles. As I mentioned last week, there'd been a spot of trouble with Charles over Henry's title, and they finally resorted to use that old favourite, Defender of the Faith, rather than Supreme Head of the Church, which was awkward, and so the deal was on. By February the 1543, then, as Brick remarked, Christendom could rejoice in the sight of a war between one group formed of an alliance between the Holy Roman Emperor and a schismatic king against the most Christian king of France and his ally, the infidel Turk. Here was the plan then. By June 1544, Henry would put 42,000 men in the field and march along the traditional invasion route along the Somme to Paris. Meanwhile, Charles would invade from the east of France. The helpless Francis would be squished between thumb and index finger like a rotten grape. Easy peasy. Squeeze the lemon. By May, Francis had been presented with the obligatory challenge and preparations began. So that's all very nice. And Henry enjoyed himself in his preparations, always eager to offer a view and a helpful opinion to the armoury experts, which no doubt they thoroughly enjoyed and welcomed. It would be, of course, the Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk that would command next year when the military balloon went up. That brings me to a digression. Would you mind terribly? I hope not. The digression is something that has been weighing on my mind, which is that a while ago I started the story of the Princess Mary, Henry VIII's sister, that one Mary out of the many millions of Marys we seem to have to deal with, and Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. And then I forgot to keep going and finish it off. Which is a shame in a way, because as far as one half of the story is concerned, we were almost there. I think I had relayed Mary's refusal to countenance Anne Boleyn, her firm support for Catherine of Aragon and traditional religion. And so, Mary had refused to go with Anne to Calais back in 1533 and had not been present at the little wedding. And actually, by then, Mary had been ill for a while and was suffering, but she had just enough strength to celebrate the marriage of her daughter Francis to the third Marquis of Dorset, Henry Grey. Frances was actually to be the longest-lived of her four children, as it happens, and Frances herself would have three daughters herself, including one called Jane, known to history as Lady Jane Grey. As Princess Mary's granddaughter, this Lady Jane was not far away from the descent of the crown, in the extremely, vanishingly unlikely event that all of Henry's children died childless. Anyway, the wedding cost a fortune, 1,166 quid, 
which would have maintained a labourer and his family for 500 years or 500 labourers and their families for one year, whichever makes the obscene cost of the thing quite clear. But as we know, weddings are not supposed to be for those getting married, they are designed for the parents. So hopefully Charles and Mary were happy with their outlay, the king came along, and one has to hope that the duke himself didn't indulge in too much dad dancing. This was in fact the last time Mary came to London and the last time she saw her brother. She died on the 25th of June 1533 at the age of 38, a death identified by the Spanish Chronicle as being, of course, the result of the king's marriage to Anne. There was a great requiem mass in Westminster Abbey and then a real funeral in Suffolk. There was a bit of an awkward incident at the funeral when two of Mary's daughters, two surviving daughters actually, Frances and Eleanor, placed a pall of cloth of gold on their mother's coffin and then, shock horror, there appeared the Duke of Suffolk's daughters by his first marriage. You know, the one with Anne Brown, who Brandon had dumped when something better came along. Just to remind you who we're dealing with here. Anyway, Francis and Eleanor retired in horror and were not seen at the funeral again. Families, eh, can be awkward. One of the people who was not at the funeral was Charles Brandon himself. We know not why, but sadly it could be that the noble Charles Brandon had already moved on, emotionally speaking, because the death of his wife put him in a bit of a quandary, a financial quandary. Mary had been getting a handsome stipend from the King of France as an ex-Queen of France, and now that was stopped. So Charles needed a new source of wealth, otherwise known as a wife. You may remember that Charles's marriage history is something of a measure of a man. He was something of a worm, and sadly I suspect that worm is the only appropriate word. In their household, Mary and Charles had one Catherine Willoughby. She was Charles's ward, and they had planned that when she grew up, it would be nice to marry her to their son, Henry Brandon, who was of a similar age. When Mary, though, died on the 25th of June, Catherine Willoughby was just 14 years old. And indeed, just a couple of months later, Catherine was indeed married. But not to their 10-year-old son, but to the 49-year-old Charles. Just in case you think this is all perfectly normal in Tudor times, it really isn't. Chapuis was moved to write to Charles V. Although it is not worth writing to your majesty, the novelty of the case made me mention it. As it happens, Catherine Willoughby was to prove something of a character and a couple of stories survive about her. She was intelligent, sharp-witted, not afraid to show it. She was also of an evangelical turn of mind, a strong advocate of reformation, and as such she influenced her husband towards reform as much as Mary had influenced him towards conservatism. Catherine would become part of Catherine Parr's household and inner circle, a group of women at court, all strongly supportive of the Reformation. She also reportedly had a dog, which she decided to call Gardiner, after the Conservative Bishop of Winchester, which actually isn't a bad gag. You can imagine her ordering Gardiner to behave or come to heel or sit down. You know, it's not a bad idea. I may do it myself. Sadly, in 1551, Catherine would suffer the horror of seeing both her young sons by Charles Brandon die in the same epidemic of the sweating sickness. Anyway, sorry, that's a long digression, but I feel as though I have at least done my duty, unless I have mentioned it before, in which case I apologise. Incidentally, by way of a link, I might mention that Stephen Gardner, while being named after Catherine Willoughby's dog, also acquired a nickname at this time because he was put in charge of all the victualling and supply of the army, and that was to bring France to her knees the following year. I suppose this is in the tradition of Cardinal Wolsey, who had made such a good job of providing the army with salad back in Henry's salad days, 
and his first campaign in 1517. As he struggled to develop a source of supply for beer and meat and fish, the Bishop of Winchester became called Stephen Stockfish. It works. It works well, I think. Stephen Stockfish, it shall be from here on in. In 1543, then, Henry had decided that he would be going to war in 1544, and no doubt his dreams were full of martial glory. But everything was not quite right. There was still a hole in his life. Henry was lonely. Henry's court was once more empty of a queen's household. Henry had want of a queen. However, he had created a new problem for himself should he want to remarry, though it's unlikely he thought of it as his fault. Because there's one thing I forgot to mention with all the Catherine Howard execution and stuff, of which you will probably all remind me, as and when we come to discuss the matter of whether or not Henry should be considered a tyrant. This was an act of attainder, introduced in January 1542 to deal with Catherine. It stipulated that if anyone married the king, without plain declaration before of her unchaste life unto his majesty, it was treason, and adultery by or with the queen was also now treason. Okay, so the act was passed by Parliament, so... Technically, it wasn't a tyranny, but in this case, it was used to convict Catherine, and therefore it was very retrospective, which is deeply, deeply dodgy. But I mention it here because it did make the qualification criteria for another queen even harder. Chapuis remarked that if the king was looking for a wife, it could be something of a struggle to find someone, since they'd have to fess up any of their unchastities. So, it was a bit of a surprise that on the 12th of July, 1543, the king married his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, and no one is very sure about how it came about. But of course, as a widow, she was a pretty good choice in terms of the rule of that attainder. Now, I think I had probably gone through the same process with Catherine Parr, as have many people. When I was a lad at school, in the very brief period that I did the Tudors, Catherine Parr was represented as a rather older woman. There was even a smell of frump hanging around in her general vicinity, and she was essentially presented as more of a nurse to the old warhorse and his smelly leg than as a real wife, or, indeed, person. It appears that the venerable 19th century writer Agnes Strickland was largely responsible for this powerful and remarkably durable image. Our Agnes really was very influential. Like the rest of the world, I have then been surprised to learn about a person with a pretty strong character influential in a more subtle way than Anne Boleyn maybe, but an interesting character and story nonetheless. I do not mean to make comparisons and might at this point refer you to John Lydgate, who wrote in 1440, Odious of old have been comparisonists, and of comparisonists engendered is hatred. Or, comparisons are odious and from them springs hatred. Funnily enough, I always thought that quote was Oscar Wilde. I clearly have nothing to declare but my ignorance. Anyway, as always, you can make up your own mind about Catherine later. Catherine then came of a well-established and successful gentry family from the north of England, who had done that most critical thing, played the most popular game of the 15th century so successfully as to have made their fortune. The game was, of course, Kingmaker, the Wars of the Roses. Catherine's grandfather, William Parr, had supported Edward IV at the vital moment. And then Catherine's father, Thomas Parr, married into a Northamptonshire family, the Vox, which that was very clever, very clever indeed, because the Vox were Lancastrians. And so when Henry VII won at Bosworth, they won a second time from the turn of fortune's wheel. Phew! The Pars were also courtiers, and they were insiders, with a house on the Strand, 
and Thomas Parr won service with the king in France and was knighted by him and won public office. He was doing well, the lad. His wife, Maud, was a lady-in-waiting for the queen, that is, Queen Catherine of Aragon, and they had three children together, Catherine, William and Anne. Of course, if life's going well, then you know there's trouble around the corner, and sure enough, in 1517, Thomas made the foolish mistake of dying. This was bad. Catherine was just five years old, Maud Parr herself was only 25, and she was now faced with the prospect of raising a family. She was not completely alone, it must be said, with an uncle called William Parr. And also Thomas, very unusually actually, had left his wife Maud an interest in the family estate for the rest of her life. This was unusual, would normally have gone to his heir and into Ward, therefore. So although Maud would still have to take note of the king's rights with regards to her son's marriage, for example, she had an unusual amount of financial freedom. Maud Parr seems to have been a very capable person, well able to manage both the upbringing of her children and to prepare them for a possible life at court and to manage the family estates. She decided she would therefore not remarry, but devote herself to said looking after. She took advice, turning to Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall, for example, for advice about the education of her children. So there is some debate about Catherine's capability at Latin, largely due to her own very English self-deprecation when she was grown up. But actually, it's a pretty good bet she knew Latin quite well and corresponded with scholars in the language. She was also fluent in French and Italian, and of course, she was taught all the normal skills of the Tudor noblewoman, dancing, singing, etiquette and manners, playing music. Her upbringing then prepared her unusually widely, which would show itself in her publications, which we'll come to at some future episode. But she also had the example of her unusually independent mother before her. She seems to have valued that lesson well. One biographer noted that Catherine continues to use her own independent name, using the initials KP when she's Queen, Catherine Parr, ignoring the names accreted from her three marriages. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Maud Parr knew, of course, that making a good marriage for her children was one of her most important duties, if not the most important duty. And with her son William, Catherine's younger brother, she pulled off something of a coup. To do that, she had to take a considerable financial risk, buying back the right to arrange his marriage from the king for the outrageous sum of a £1,000, which must have meant a significant debt. But it would prove worth it, or at least she thought it would, because William was married to Lady Anne Boucher, heiress to the honour of the Earl of Essex. Now that's a tangled story, so I'm going to digress within a digression and talk about William Parr, Catherine's younger brother, He himself turns out to offer a mixed sort of picture. He's clearly also well-educated, like his elder sister, and cultured, but he turned out not to be particularly skilful politically, rather naive. And while not quite a cipher in the politics of the following reigns, he never has the force of character to really drive events. In his marriage, he seems to have been most unfortunate from anything other than a purely financial and status uh, side, which to him was, true to say, 
presumably pretty important. But Lady Anne Boucher had been married to him at the age of 10. Then the two of them seemed to have been curiously unenthusiastic about the idea of starting being properly married. And Anne seems to have been unenthusiastic also about the idea of life at court. So the first record of her appearance there was not until 1539, when she's 22. If you'll allow me to speculate mindlessly, you have to suspect that Anne wanted the quiet life that she found in the wilderness of Surrey, and so the attractions of William Parr were not enough to drag her to and keep her at court. After that experience of going to court in 1539, her reaction, two years later, was to flee, and she eloped with a local cleric called John Lingfield, and they soon started having a family together in a way that, at the time, would have been really pretty scandalous. For William, this was a tricky situation. He couldn't get an annulment, and try as he might, he struggled to get a divorce agreed. Anne herself seems almost entirely absent from the documentary record, and hopefully her choice for obscurity was one she or her children, all of whom were declared illegitimate, did not regret. Actually, only one of her children seems to have survived to maturity. So, it took years for William to get a divorce, finally achieved with an Act of Parliament in 1552. Although in 1543, he was able to confirm that Anne had given up any right of inheritance for her or her children. Given the extent of her riches when she got married, Anne paid a very high financial price for her freedom. Parr, meanwhile, started an affair in 1541 with a 17-year-old lady at court, Dorothy Bray. Until in 1543, he then took up with her niece, Elizabeth Brooke. Niece. He took up with the niece of a 19-year-old. Well, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, that I was alarmed, but Elizabeth was only two years younger than her aunt, as it happens. This relationship then lasted, and when the divorce finally came through for Parr, who was Earl of Northampton by this time, he then married Elizabeth Brooke. But the path of true love is never smooth. When Queen Mary came to the throne with her more traditional view of life, Parr was visited with the absurdity of being ordered to return to Anne Boucher, which neither of them wanted, along with the re-establishment of religious orthodoxy, and only with Elizabeth I did some kind of sanity reassert itself, as in so many things, and he and Elizabeth Brooke were finally able to relax. Elizabeth Brooke then died in 1565. Parr, however, was not yet finished. Six years later, in 1571, then aged 57, he married again to one Helena, a 16-year-old. Now, I realise, and publicly accept, that I have moved from history smoothly and seamlessly into what can only be described, frankly, as gossip, or, if you want to be kind, mindless tittle-tattle. The ages of these marriages just never seeks to astound me. It could be just me, but it seems to have got a lot worse recently. I apologise. Back to Catherine, then. It so happens that her father, Thomas Parr, had specifically set aside £400 as a dowry for her, and £400 also for her sister Anne which meant she'd have a good shot at a good marriage as well. Her mother had aimed high for her boy, and she did the same for her girls. She negotiated hard with the Scroops, and when they would not accept the right deal, she just turned her back on the whole thing. She was no way settling for second best. Eventually, she landed Catherine a reasonable marriage to a baron's son, one Edward Burrough. It was fine. His dad was a bit of an ogre, and there was madness in the family, but hey, I had been led to accept that's what fathers are like, so there you go. Maud sadly died in 1531. Her second daughter Anne would also marry well into the Herbert family in 1538, so she would have been well content. Anne Parr 
was part of Anne Boleyn's household as well at one stage, and this seems to have made her an enthusiastic evangelical. And the same would apply eventually to her older sister, Catherine, who would also become a champion for the evangelical cause. So, the question then was, how and why did she become an evangelical? After all, folks have said she lived in ah, the north, in the frozen wastes, north of Watford Gap services amongst the wild people. Surely she must have had three heads and loved the traditional religion, along with the rest of the grace-seeking pilgrims. I parody, of course, southern attitudes, considering myself more of a product of the north than the south. But anyway, on this basis, it's been speculated that Catherine came late to her evangelical views, maybe as late as 1544. Also, to support the late developer argument, we know that Catherine did start off with traditional views. Because later in life, she cried out that I sought for such riffraff as the Bishop of Rome had planted in his tyranny and kingdom, trusting with great confidence by the virtue and holiness of them to receive full remission of sins. Interesting to see the expression riffraff there, which it turns out is indeed a 15th century expression of rather unclear origin, but maybe from the 14th century Norman French for every single one, one and all sort of thing, a sense of indiscriminate lack of choice leading to a negative, all that rubbish kind of thing. Hmm. Anyway, it seems just as likely though that her evangelical views were formed earlier than 1544. There were plenty of evangelicals in the north too, so witness Francis Bigard and his evangelical views in his rebellion of 1537, for example and her evidence in 1536 and 7 with the pilgrimage of grace might just as easily have horrified her with its violence, danger, and the implied and sometimes explicit threat to social order. Because Edward Burrow died pretty quickly, and by 1534, Catherine was married once more to Baron Latimer. Latimer was one of those who claimed to have been forced into a leading role in the pilgrimage of grace. As we know, the commons did not entirely trust their gentry to keep the faith, a lack of trust which, as we have seen, was entirely vindicated by events. And in January 1537, Lady Latimer, Catherine Parr that is, was captured at a place called Snape in Yorkshire and severed from her freedom along with her husband's two children. Now, that was probably a little scary and could well be enough to put your back up and actually Catherine seems to have largely deserted the beautiful North for their southern estates from here on in. So, We'll probably never be sure, but the long and short is that it seems perfectly reasonable to suppose that Catherine came to court already inclined to speak with the evangelical tongue. Now, in the winter of 1542, Catherine Parr joined the household of Princess Mary, and this brought her consistently to court and brought her to the attention of the king. That's all very well, but in the meantime, Catherine was more interested, married woman though she was, in securing the attentions of one Thomas Seymour, or at least her head was turned by one Thomas Seymour, and indeed she seems to have succeeded also in securing said attentions of Thomas Seymour. He was a dangerous man to know. He would have been about 33-34 in early 1543 and still single. He was the younger brother of Edward Seymour, Lord Hartford, and Jane Seymour, dead queen. To say that he had none of his brother's substance seems one way of putting it, but may have had a good deal more charisma on the other hand. He was fiery, ambitious, intelligent, rather wild. Much later, his servant would say that, if he had once conceived opinion by his own persuasions, neither lawyer nor other could turn him. On his execution, the Princess Elizabeth herself 
would say that he had been a man with much wit and very little judgment, while a childhood friend described him as hardy, wise and liberal, fierce in courage, courtly in fashion, in personage, stately, in voice magnificent, but somewhat empty of matter. Well, those quotes are not all universally compatible, but you get the message, hopefully. Form over substance, the all that glitters is not gold sort of category. But like fool's gold, sparkly, attractive. The fact that Catherine clearly found as unreliable a bloke as Thomas Seymour attractive, oddly adds to her reputation, does it, rather than detracting? Largely, I suppose, because in so many other aspects of her life, she chose duty, good sense, steadfastness, thoughtfulness and learning. All of which puts her into the worthy but dull pigeonhole, and her passion for Thomas Seymour seems rather to add colour. Not sure if that's a worthy thought, but there we go. We appear to have no idea what form this relationship took in the early days. The evidence which is quoted everywhere is a letter that Catherine would write to Thomas after Henry's death. I would not have you think that this, mine honest goodwill towards you, to proceed of any sudden motion of passion, for as truly as God is God, my mind was fully bent the other time I was at liberty to marry you before any man I know. But of course, fate intervened. On the one hand, her husband, Lord Latimer, died on the 2nd of March, 1543. There appears to have been no argy-bargy between husband and wife, no suggestion that Catherine had been playing away or anything. She was allocated two manners in his will, all very civilised. I am not suggesting for any moment that Catherine was anything other than sad that he had died. But given that he had died, maybe her thoughts turned to possibilities that opened up to the rather more thrilling Thomas Seymour. But once again the moving finger writ, and having writ, moved on. One chronicle has Henry announcing to his council, Gentlemen, I desire company, but I have had more than enough of taking young wives, and I am now resolved to marry a widow. His gaze had settled in a male kind of way on Catherine Parr, and it seems that he popped the question not long after Latimer's death. Catherine took her time. I have to say I'm a little unsure as to how much choice she really had. The regular story when talking about Catherine Howard, for example, seems to be that it was essentially a rhetorical question, or a Hobson's choice, a question with but one answer. But Anne Boleyn never seemed to assume she had to say yes, and Catherine Parr now certainly behaves as though she did have a genuine choice. It must have been a tricky decision. Big fat bloke with a smelly leg, and a life without privacy, or the power of the Queen and marriage to a character seen as the closest thing to God. It seems that duty and ambition won out. There are a couple of things to bear in mind here. I have often thought that it's relatively easy to empathise with the depth of religious belief in early modern times, since we have examples all around us in the modern world and may indeed share those very same beliefs. So, fine. But the level of reverence accorded monarchs in early modern times is much, much more alien to us. So suspend your cynicism when I tell you that Catherine would write of Henry as our Moses, who hath delivered us out of the captivity and spiritual bondage of Pharaoh, hath taken away the veils and mists of errors, and brought us to the knowledge of the truth by the light of God's word. So, while we in the 21st century might delight in pouring scorn on the chap, things were different then. This was not to be an offer she would take lightly, but probably not because, as the cynical chef we wrote from a sense of danger, but from a sense of the enormity of it, and the cost to her personal happiness. So, Catherine, a deeply religious person, 
spoke to God, she knew that he'd understand, and she'd stick by him and let him be her guiding hand. It appears that God did indeed, after a few weeks' delay, help her. She must give up her instinctive and heartfelt desires, and she must follow the path of duty. Again, she would later write, Through his grace and goodness, he made that possible which seemed to me impossible. That was, made me renounce utterly mine own will, and to follow his most willingly. Which makes it clear that she actively chose Henry. It makes it equally clear that she might have preferred that the cup of poison had not been presented to her at all, and that it was not an easy decision. On the 12th of July, 1543 then, Henry and Catherine were married at Hampton Court, privately as was Henry's way, with Bishop Gardiner officiating. Cranmer, at this point, you might remember, was teetering on the brink of disaster at Stephen Stockfish's hands. There were about 20 guests, including Catherine's younger sister Anne and three of her closest friends and ladies-in-waiting, Catherine Willoughby, Anne Seymour, wife of Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, and Joan, Viscountess Lyle. You might also remember that at pretty much the same time, three evangelicals were burned for heresy. In Strasbourg, a man called Richard Hills was following events eagerly. It's a feature of the English Reformation that with every twist and turn, you see a group of those with more extreme views flee to the continent for safety, which gives a kind of, I don't know, barometer of progress. At this time, exiles were probably dominated by disappointed evangelicals like our Richard Hills. And then with Mary's return, we'll have the Marian exiles, while with Elizabeth, we'll be talking about the Catholic exiles and recusants. And I left out Edward. Well, you can guess that. Anyway, in September 1543, Hills doesn't sound very impressed at all. Our king has, with these two months, burned three godly men in one day. But then, he is always wont to celebrate his nuptials by some wickedness of this kind. It's an interesting comment, and not just because it's a reasonably good, if rather black, gag, but because it lends some weight to the idea that Catherine came to evangelicalism as late as 1544, since Richard doesn't seem to be celebrating Catherine's arrival with any enthusiasm. It's not clear if others knew that Catherine would be as important an advocate as any for the evangelicals, and that poor Thomas Cranmer had at last acquired himself an ally. OK, everyone, that is it for this week. Now, it will be a while before I speak to you all again. Next week, we have a bit of a treat, a guest episode from Joel. Joel is going to talk out of turn. That is to say, he's going to talk about a colony established in 1584 on the coast of North America. So, it's a little early, but you know, it's a chance for us to look ahead and hear about one of the world's mysteries. It is a humding of episode. I am sure you will all enjoy it. Then, sadly, I'm having a week off, so it will be the 20th of May before we finally get to that war I have been talking about in France. But I will see you then. Meanwhile, do not forget about the Things That Made England podcast. Come along and listen, vote and comment. And check out onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ref forward slash eng. And meanwhile, thanks for listening, everyone. Good luck and have a great couple of weeks. Bye.